Jason, Sam. I just love Christmas songs. <laughs> I mean, oh, they're just endlessly beautiful and good, and their subject is endlessly beautiful and good, and that's what I hope to speak to you about uh, this morning. If you'll open up your Bibles to uh, Psalm chapter 72, Psalm 72, it's on page 485, if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, and I do recommend following along. And I'm going to be dealing primarily with the uh, first 17 verses of Psalm 72, and there's a reason why I'm just going through uh, the first 17 verses, and it's because uh, when you get there, you'll see that kind of 18 through 20 ends with this um, doxology, which is uh, just the same as um, earlier at the end of book one of the Psalms. It ends with a doxology, and it's kind of the capstone of this book of the Psalms. So what most people, uh, most scholars today think is that 18 through 20 is really less a part of Psalm 72 than it is just the tagline kind of at the end of the whole book of Psalms. Uh, And it says there that here in, in verse 20, hear the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. But then at the beginning of Psalm 72, you see these words of Solomon. So you go, is this of David or is this of Solomon? And I'll just tell you what I think is that Psalm 72 is actually written, uh, it's of Solomon, just like all the other Psalms that say of Asaph or of David. It's written by Solomon, um, but it's in this book that contains the prayers of the son of David. Not every psalm in uh, book two of the psalms was written by David, but then here there's that kind of capstone at the end that says, uh, here the prayers of David are ended. So that's extra. I mean, you just got that as kind of like extra, not even part of the sermon, just as part of the scripture introduction. So let's stand and we'll read this Psalm of Solomon from the book of Psalms, book two here. Verse 1 of Psalm 72, of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon, throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live 
May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. In verse 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You may be seated and have a moment to reflect on God's word. You'll keep your scriptures open. It'll help you to follow along with us as we're going through this psalm written by a king for a king. You know, hope is a risky business. Uh, Sometimes the things we've hoped for, sometimes the things we're waiting for, don't turn out like we intend them to. Now, this is especially true in the realm of toy advertising for kids. If you want just a hilarious exercise, uh, Google misleading toy advertisements, and you'll see just scores of examples of toys that kind of promise to deliver uh, really joy and happiness. And actually, in reality, they delivered much less. I call this um, the sea monkey effect. So I don't know if you've ever seen sea monkeys. Some of you may have even owned a family of sea monkeys. But the sea monkey, the the advertisers are really just, they're lying to people. Because on the the package, you look, and it's got this kind of family of kind of fish monkey type people. And they've got clothes on, and they're kind of like sitting, watching TV together. You know, and the mom has like an apron on. And, um, and then, so you're like, this is going to be awesome. And it says, you know, you can train them. They can do tricks. And then uh, when you get the sea monkeys, you realize they're really just like little tiny shrimp. They're like little bugs. It's a huge bummer. It's not what they advertised it to be. And I think that happens to a lot, especially this time of year, because there's, there's so much buildup. Uh, both kind of within ourselves and then outward from adverti- advertisers. And I mean, the catalogs started coming to our house like, like two months ago. And uh, we tried to uh, throw them away, but our kids somehow found them even before we could get to them. And so uh, there, there's these like big glossy pictures of these toys uh, that, that promise to be spectacular. They, they promise to be life-changing. But then what always happens is kind of, you know, the morning of 20, the 26th, in the cold light of day, you know, when, when the kind of the cocoa has worn off, you, you see everything and you go, you know, this isn't that great. It's really just a piece of plastic. Um, 
Yet when you stack them up against our massive hopes, the reality seems kind of puny in comparison. These products that we consume and the things that are promised turn out to be uh, way less effective than advertised, much less perfect than they are promised to be. And that was kind of the story of Israel's kings. You know, they had the hope uh, that God would send a good king who would reflect the good God that rescued them out of slavery. There was a hope and a promise from God. He advertised that, that someday the perfect leader would come who would defeat evil Genesis 3, he would crush the head of the serpent and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 22. And so they were looking for a leader, kind of like Mary Poppins, who's practically perfect in every way. But each leader of Israel, more or less, kind of starting with Saul, uh, really starting with David, and then kind of going down through Solomon and his uh, line, Instead of practically perfect in every way, they turned out to be progressively less perfect than promised. And yet, despite the shortcomings of their leaders, God's people continued to hope. They knew that our God has kept all of his promises in the past, so his people kept hoping. They kept praying that God would send them the leader, the king that he promised. Now, this psalm shows us just what kind of king God's people were hoping for and praying for. And it begins as a prayer of petition, asking God to bless Israel's king. And then something happens about halfway through. You realize that what this king who wrote the psalm is asking for is something that no earthly king can really provide. This prayer is pointing to a greater king to come. It's pointing to the Messiah. This psalm shows us the expectations behind the shepherd's message. And maybe some of what Mary was thinking when she sang that wonderful song, the Magnificat, right? Where she just kind of takes all these promises of the Messiah from Isaiah and Zechariah and she like melds them into one amazing song. She knew exactly what she was saying. She was saying the promised king is coming. So when we pray as God's people for God's kingdom to come, this psalm describes the kind of kingdom that we're praying for. Now, Psalm 72 has been a favorite of hymn writers who look back at this psalm and they immediately recognize that it's speaking about Jesus. There's two examples on your bulletin of two uh, hymns, one of which we're going to sing at the end. But these are kind of uh, verses that you don't normally see. One is from James Montgomery. His song is called Hail to the Lord's Anointed. And then the the one that we're going to sing together at the end of the service is called Jesus Shall Reign Where'er the Sun wherever the sun, and it's by Isaac Watts, which is really just uh, Isaac Watts' paraphrase of this psalm. And Isaac, I call him Isaac, uh, he looks back at this psalm and he inserts the name of Jesus because as we're going to see, this psalm is really not about David, not about Solomon. It's about the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So in this season of waiting for a leader, waiting for Christ, waiting for the king. I want us to ask, what kind of king are we waiting for? Psalm 72 is holding up the beauty of this king for us so that our response can be one of hope, can be one of excitement, can be one of anticipation and confidence in his return. And as you look kind of at the structure, you see it's almost like a call and response. Uh, The king acts and then the world 
responds. And as you look at this king, you're going to see just a couple things about him. We'll see that the Messiah will be a king of justice. That's verses 1 through 4. He'll be a king with a universal rule, verses 5 through 11. That he will be a merciful king, verses 12 through 14, who's going to bring overflowing blessing, verses 15 through 17. So we're just going to go through it and see what it says and see what it stirs up in us. So first, first thing we're hoping for, first thing we're praying for, first thing we're looking for is that we are, as Christians are hoping for a king of justice, a king who will rule God's people with justice and righteousness. Why is this the first request? Why is justice and righteousness the first uh, request? And I would argue that because in the Old Testament, a life of justice and righteousness was seen as the expression of God's presence on earth. A just and righteous leader was a leader who was imaging, representing God. This concept of justice in the Old Testament, it, it, it's a little bit different than what we think of when we hear the word justice. When we hear justice, we typically think of like people getting what they deserve, like, um, like penal justice, like the justice, the criminal justice system, things being fair. And, that, and that's true. The Hebrew word for justice is called uh, mishpat, and its most basic meaning is treating people fairly, treating people equitably, acquitting or punishing each person based on the merits of the case, regardless of their race, regardless of their social status. But in the Old Testament, there's this kind of bigger meaning of justice too. It's not just fairness. It means care for the vulnerable. Not just legal justice, but protective justice. Over and over again, this word mishpat describes taking up the care and the cause of what some people call, uh, what Tim Keller calls, the quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. So a just king is someone who cares for the vulnerable, for widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And a just society or just group, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups of vulnerable people. Any neglect shown to the needs of the vulnerable, when it's exposed by the Bible, it does, it's not called a lack of mercy or a lack of charity or a, a failure to do good necessarily. It's called a violation of justice. It's called injustice. And along with this concept of justice is this idea of righteousness. Now we think of someone who's righteous, we think someone's you know, morally good. Morally upright, morally uh, holy, they're obedient to God, they're following the Ten Commandments. But actually, in the Old Testament, it's deeper than that. It's connected to this idea of justice. Righteousness means a life of right relationships. Not just private morality, not just obedience to God personally, but light, right relationships. So goodness is kind of flowing out of you in your relationships. That's what righteousness means. Uh, it's the word siddiq. Uh, I really don't know how to speak Hebrew, so that's what I'm thinking it is. It refers to a day-to-day -day living when a, when, in which a person conducts all their relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. In other words, a nation where there was righteousness, where everyone walked in righteousness, there would be no need for penal justice. There would be no need for righting the wrongs or taking up the cause of the poor because the poor would already be taken care of. Everyone would already be caring for everyone equitably and perfectly. 
So that's this idea of righteousness and justice. And these things are always combined in the Old Testament. Can you just imagine for a moment what it would be like if, if we lived in a society like that? You never had to suspect anyone's motives. You never had to lock your doors. You know, um, you never had to um, lock your car because you were worried that someone's going to come around and like test your, um, your car door handle like people do all the time in my neighborhood. And I always get my little charger stolen out of my phone, out of my car. But there'd be no need to, to defend yourself because you're freely trusting and extending yourself to one another. People who are in power wouldn't be abusing their power to take advantage of other people. Oh my goodness, wouldn't that be great? Think of how much damage that causes when people who are in power take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. So you can see the meaning of this kind of request in verse 1 and 2. Give the king your justice. Give your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people in righteousness and your poor with justice. It's explained by verse 4, where it says, May that king defend the cause of the poor. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. May they crush the oppressor. Righteousness and justice means defending the cause of the poor. Fixing injustice. A just king is not a king who helps the powerful. I mean, that's fine if the powerful get help, but honestly, the powerful are powerful. They can help themselves. I mean, the people who are powerful in a society, they don't really care uh, if the government is good or the government is bad because you kind of have a little bit of a safety net where you can care for yourself. I mean, you care, but you're not as deeply affected as the people who are most vulnerable. There are situations in this world where unjust rulers are absolutely crushing the hopes of the poor and the powerless. And the society is so unjust that the people who have no power have no way to affect change. And the Bible is saying we need a ruler who will undo all of that. The picture in, this first verse is, in these first verses is of a leader who rules so well that their people live in perfect harmony with one another and with God, so that, as verse 3 says, prosperity would roll down from the tops of the mountains. And this word prosperity, we think of like, I don't know, health and wealth or something like that. But prosperity, this word, is Hebrew root word is shalom, which means peace, which means wholeness, which means integrity, which means this kind of woven togetherness of all things. It's life in the garden before the fall. Justice and righteousness would weave things back together so that shalom, peace, would roll down from the mountains. So for Christians, when we're thinking about this prayer, we're realizing that there is no one who is better suited to rule than Jesus Christ. The Christian understands the truth about Jesus' righteous ways and, they, and looks forward to him bringing his justice to bear on the earth. And if we truly understand this about the nature of Jesus' rule, and we truly understand this about the character of the kingdom, it makes us want to be righteous and just people as well. And the, the early church got this. You know, the world around them was kind of bent towards advantaging the powerful. And what did the early Christians do? They disadvantaged themselves for the sake of the weak and the needy. The Roman government would leave unwanted babies just out to die, and Christians would adopt them. 
Uh, this is what one uh, emperor, Emperor Julia, says. It says, the impious Galileans, the Christians, they support not only their poor, but they support ours as well. They don't just take care of their own people. They take care of the Roman poor. Everyone can see that they lack aid from us. Everyone knows we're not doing a good job taking care of our own citizens. And guess who's doing it? The Christians are. In the early church, the Christians said, we serve a king who has come to serve the powerless. And so what we are going to do is when we see injustice, we are going to represent him. We are going to stand in the gap and we are going to push for justice and we are going to help those who are most vulnerable. That's our hope as Christians for a king who will come and make what is unjust just. So that's the hope. So, so then how should we pray that this king's righteous rule would be received? Uh, well, you see it in verses 5 through 11. We're, we're looking forward to and we're kind of praying that this king's righteous and just rule would be universally received, that he would have this universal reign. The hope is for a worldwide universal recognition of the king and a lasting submission to his rule. And you kind of see the background to the prayer in uh, 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David, he says, David, I'm going to put your son on the throne forever. And so there's this hope, okay, um, your, the king, the descendant of David, is going to reign on David's throne forever. And we think, okay, that must mean Solomon. But is Solomon the son, the descendant of David, that, that God is actually speaking about? Okay, let's kind of stack it up to these verses here in 5 through 11. Let's see. What do we see about the king's reign? How long is his reign going to last? Look in verses 5 through 7. His reign will last forever, as long as the sun and moon last. And wait, even longer than that. Verse 7, his days will last till the moon is no more, till the moon be no more. The sun and the moon are going to wear out, and this king will still be reigning and ruling. Okay, how far will this king's kingdom spread? Look at verses 8 through 11. It's going to spread across the known world. From Tarshish, which, is, uh, which commentators think is like um, near Gibraltar. It's this place called Tartessos. Um, kind of on the, the, the western side, the very kind of mouth of the Mediterranean Sea. Sorry, it's over here if you're looking at a map. From there, uh, all the way to the king of Sheba, in Ethiopia, so kind of down southeast. So it's this kind of the span of the known world at the time. They're saying from the ends of the earth, as far as we can say, uh, that's how far his kingdom is going to spread. And we think, okay, maybe this is talking about Solomon. You remember the queen of Sheba comes and pays him tribute. But First Kings doesn't say anything about Spain. It doesn't say anything about all the nations of the earth serving him, and certainly not for the subsequent kings of Israel. So I think this is pointing to a greater king than Solomon. And Solomon was the most famous, the most world-renowned of all of Israel's kings, the most wealthy of all of Israel's kings. But here, the response is universal. When the right king comes... It's as if every knee in creation bows in reverence and service of him. Does that remind you of anyone? 
Anyone at whose name every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? I think it does. Okay, so why do you think Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, what do you think he's getting at when he takes care to mention that wise men came from the far off lands in the east to fall down and worship the newborn baby Jesus? What do you think he's getting at? What do you think Matthew's getting at in chapter 28 when Jesus gives his great commission to the disciples and he commands them to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he says, I'm gonna be with you to the very end of the age. And in fact, he's gonna be with us even beyond that. Matthew is trying to say, this is the king we've been waiting for. This is the king that's been promised. He's saying, one greater than Solomon has come. He's broken into this world. And we can look forward to his kingdom rule spreading across the world and lasting until the end of creation itself. That's why Isaac Watts can take this psalm and he can see Christ in it. That's why he titled his psalm, Jesus Shall Reign. Where'er the sun, wherever the sun does his successive journeys run, Jesus will reign wherever the sun touches. And he'll reign as long as the sun lasts. In fact, even longer. Now, as Christians, knowing that our king has come and is seated on his throne, ruling right now, should give us tremendous confidence to face the challenges of a hostile and a negative culture. Because despite what some people have said over history, Christianity is not just an old made-up story. It's not just a, a, a thing from a less enlightened time. It's not just a primitive religion. It is the story of all human history. Everything else is a footnote to the story of the church, of Christianity. A few weeks ago, Paul told this story about how during the French Revolution, Voltaire, you guys remember Voltaire, Voltaire and others, they, they overthrew or attempted to overthrow the Christian religion and replace it with a religion of reason. This was the Enlightenment in France. You know, and they created temples to reason. And Voltaire made this great claim that, quote, there would be a day when the name of Jesus Christ would be remembered no more. He said, within a generation, it's going to happen. Uh, a seminary professor of mine told this story about a minister he knows who was being taken on a tour through the Louvre in Paris, this museum. And, and the tour guide said, that's the chair where Voltaire sat and pronounced there would be a day when Jesus Christ and Christianity would no ever be remembered. It would just be part of the dust of history. And the minister said, really? That chair is where he said that? And the, and the tour guide said, yeah, that chair right there. And so what the minister did is he leapt over the rope and he sat down in the chair. And this is what he said. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. He quoted Isaac Watts. And he said, what do you think of that, Voltaire? Your chair's in a museum gathering dust. My Savior is seated on a throne in his kingdom. Nobody knows your name anymore, Voltaire, except people at Christ Community Church because we keep mentioning you. But at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Nothing can stop him. Certainly not the enlightenment. 
Jesus' reign will never end. So we as Christians, we see that we're looking forward to this day when the whole world would respond in reverence and submission to Christ. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us why the promised Messiah King is going to get such a wide reception, why the nations are going to respond. Why is this king worthy of that tribute? It's not because of his crushing power. It's not because of his his irresistible conquering strength, but it's because of the quality of his mercy. Because we see in verses 12 through 14 that this king, this promised king we're hoping for, will be a merciful king. He will be a king that doesn't conquer by crushing, but he conquers through his compassion. You can tell because that's what that little word for is doing. That's what it's there for at the beginning of verse 12. It's showing you why the nations are going to bow before the king. Along with the psalmist, we're praying for a compassionate, a protector king. That his reign would be a saving reign. That his reign would be a delivering reign. Characterized by, like we saw in verses 2 and 4, tender care for those who are most vulnerable. This is the picture of Jesus in the Gospels, isn't it? Now, the Jewish nation at the time was oppressed by Rome, and uh, they're kind of picturing uh, this Messiah who's going to be a conquering king, a military leader. And this seems to be the expectation of John the Baptist. Matthew 11, John the Baptist gets thrown into prison by Herod, who's this, this evil king, this cruel, vicious king. And John the Baptist sends a message to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus... I'm just wondering, because I'm sitting in prison here and things aren't looking very good uh, for me, it sure looks like the bad guys are winning. So are you the one who's supposed to come? Or, or should I be waiting for someone else? I thought that when Messiah came, he'd bring salvation for the godly and he'd bring judgment for the wicked. So I'm sitting in prison. What gives? Are you the one we should be hoping for? And Jesus' answer to John is remarkable. This is what he says. He says, you can be confident that I really am the Messiah, that God's kingdom really is coming, and I'll tell you the evidence. And he says, it's it's fulfilling the promises, the, the prophecy of Isaiah. And it matches up with Psalm 72. This is what Jesus says. Look at what's happening, John. Let me tell you my credentials. The blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and... The good news is preached to the poor. And John goes, oh yeah. That is what the Messiah is going to do. When the Messiah comes, he's going to bend himself towards rescuing those who are most needy. And good news is going to be preached to the poor. And he's going to come and it's going to be a message of deliverance, of salvation, of mercy for those who are weak and helpless. Jesus is saying the year of the Lord's favor is here, right now. We can tell Christ really is the Messiah, not just because of the miracles. I mean, we look at that list and we go, he must be the son of God. Miracles, lepers healed, you know, uh, paralyzed people walking. This is so great. Look at the miracles. But I think what actually is an even better proof is not the miracles themselves, but who the miracles were for. The miracles were moving towards the weakest, the most defenseless, the most helpless. And Jesus is saying, this is the time when God's favor is rushing down to those in need. Can't you see the kingdom is at hand? Can't you see the king has come? 
Psalm 72, really the whole Bible, shows us that the heart of our God is beating with compassion and love for the poor, the helpless, and the weak. He is a God whose heart overflows with mercy and love, especially to the needy. And I gotta tell you, this is a huge difference between the God of Christianity and the God of every other world religion. A lot of people in our world today value compassion. They value mercy. They value the kind of just life that we talked about where you're working to help those who are disadvantaged. But only Christians have a reason for living that way because we have a God who acts that way. A friend of mine who, um, his family's all from Pakistan, uh, tells a story about uh, when he was going to visit his grandmother. And so they're kind of walking through uh, the streets of this crowded city in Pakistan. And there's a paralyzed man who's on the side of the road. And my friend who grew up in Ohio, he's like, well, I need to help this guy. So he gets some money out of his wallet and he holds it out to give to the paralyzed man. And his grandmother walks over to him and slaps his hand. And she says, don't you dare help that man. That man is getting exactly what he deserves. He is paralyzed because he sinned in a past life. He piled up bad karma and now he's reaping it in this life. You dare not help that man. You dare not extend mercy to him. He does not deserve mercy. That's what karma is. I mean, that, that's a cruel and bitter way of thinking about how the universe works. In a, the system of karma, you get what you deserve. Full stop. You reap what you sow with no exceptions. But the God of the Bible, he looks down at those who are suffering and he takes their pain upon himself. He looks down to poor, needy people like you and me who are born in a cursed world, who are born into brokenness and who break it more. It's our own fault. And he looks and he has mercy and he says, I'll take the cost of that on myself. I'll redeem you. I'll rescue you. I'll pay the penalty that you deserved. The gospel pictures a God who comes to a people like you and me who are stuck, who need a rescuer, who need a deliverer, and God swoops in and he stoops down and he takes the penalty of our disobedience upon himself to redeem us because as verse 14 says, they are precious in his sight. You are precious to God. The poor, the needy, the vulnerable, their lives, their blood is precious to God. So I'm just wondering, do you see yourself here kind of in the description of these people? Do you see that you are in fact poor, weak, and needy? Do you see that you need a rescuer? Our only hope is for a compassionate king, a king who is going to rule with mercy and act on behalf of those in need. And praise the Lord, that is exactly who we have. So now we see, okay, the promised king has come. What should our response be to this king? We see our response modeled in verse 15 through 17. 
If we have seen this king, if we know this king, if we have experienced his mercy, we should be overflowing with praise, with thanksgiving and blessing. And we should be looking forward to his coming with hope. This is the last point. Briefly. The king, when he comes, will be a king who brings overflowing blessings to all of creation. I just want you to see this entire last section. It's, it's ringing with hope, a sure hope, a durable hope, a reliable hope for our future and the future of this entire created world. If we see this king, we're gonna be praying continuously, like verse 15 says, with expectation that his kingdom would transform this physical world. Look at these images. Verse 16, there's an abundance of grain. Literally, that word means handfuls, like, like overflowing handfuls of grain on the tops of mountains. Have you ever seen the top of a mountain? You've been to Colorado. Uh, you've seen the, the top, uh, you know, the Himalayas or uh, the Rockies or the Cascades. A top of a mountain is a desolate, a barren, a inhospitable place. It is fruitless. It's difficult to grow things there. Certainly difficult to grow, you know, rows of corn there. Rows of grain there. And yet what the psalmist describes is that when the king comes, he will so transform this created world that the most inhospitable places will be bringing forth fruit. <laughs> that the lion will lay down with the lamb that the mountains will leap with joy, that it, his salvation is going to resound through a new heaven and a new earth. And all of the world will be fruitful in response to him. And in verse 16, look at this. It's not just going to be a harvest of grain. It's going to be a harvest of people. There will be people who are bearing fruit, people who are blossoming. Remember when Jesus said, look, I see the fields are white with harvest. He was talking about people coming into his kingdom, recognizing the king. This prayer that we're praying is the fulfillment of God's promises. Look at verse 17. It says, people will be blessed in him. All nations will call him blessed. You remember God made a promise way back in Genesis Genesis 3, that's the answer um, that we always ask. When in Genesis? Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15. God promises a, a descendant of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. But then later in Genesis, Genesis 22, God speaks to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, your descendants, your seed, a person that comes from your line, Listen to this. He will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. They will be like the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The psalmist is saying, the king will fulfill the promise to Abraham. Don't you see, this is all one big story. <laughs> and all that momentum, all this hope, for the promised king, the serpent crusher, the one who's going to be a light to all the nations, all of that is kind of rolling into the New Testament to that moment where the angels are speaking to the shepherds, where Gabriel comes and speaks to Mary. 
And their message is this, the king we've been waiting for, the king is here. If we see this hope, this promise as a sure thing, we can have confidence in the future. We have no need to fear dark times ahead. And there will be dark times. There has been dark times for Christians. But if we see this, if we see the sureness of this hope, if we see the reliability of these promises, then we have no reason to fear what direction the culture takes. We can be confident that our God will win. Uh, Which is why it's so fun to watch reruns of old games on ESPN, especially the games that are like, you know, nail biters all the way through. Because when you know the end of the game, when you know your team wins, you can rewatch the game and it doesn't matter how far back your team gets. You're like, no, go down 20 points, go down 50 points, go down 100 points. It doesn't matter because you know it's all the way up for the rest of the game. And when it gets to that point where it's so low, where it's so dark, you know, this is where something's going to happen. This is where it's going to turn around. And, and can I tell you, it's already turned around. The king has come and he's promised to come back. And we know the end of the story. You can flip to Revelation 21 and 22 when you see that every tear will be taken away. There'll be no more dying, no more crying. The older things will have passed away. And so we, as God's people, praying, hoping for the king, we can pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. We can have confidence that he has come and that he will come back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that there are so many things that are not safe to put our hope in. People disappoint, possessions disappoint, power disappoints. But Lord, we know that you have given us a sure hope, that you have given us a promise that will never wear away, that will never fade. And we know that you will not just live up to expectations, Father, that you will surpass what we can ever ask or imagine. Lord, it's going to be all that and better. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, help us to hope for you, to wait for you in our hearts. Be with us now as we sing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Let's stand up.